passion. I don't know how anybody accomplishes anything without being passionate about it. Anybody that I have seen who takes on a really hard problem doesn't solve that problem without being passionate about it. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs. Today we are fortunate to listen to Dr. Martin Cooper, inventor of the cell phone, or as he quickly points out, a member of the team that invented the cell phone. Fittingly, I share with you one of many cell phone conversations I've had with Marty about creating breakthrough ideas, no matter what role you find yourself in right now. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pled, from every mountain let freedom ring. Invisible threads are the strongest ties, Nietzsche added. In just a moment, the father of the cell phone, Dr. Martin Cooper. Welcome to Bold Breakthroughs that unstick work and life. I'm Mark Cook, New York Times bestselling innovator. Each week I offer keynotes that engage thousands, and teams embed me weekly to unstick tech pivots, sales prospects, and ops constraints. We roll up our sleeves in small groups to create breakthroughs on top priorities for each individual, in person or via Zoom. Nine global studies of over two million successes fueled my 4,000 wins at top brands. I've shared rapid innovation in over 50 cities worldwide. Teams create revenue breakthroughs and clients see new profits. Thank you for listening and inspiring your breakthrough today. Hello again, Marty. Hi, Mark. How are things going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate your time. Before we jump in, I thought it would be valuable if we shared with the whole audience about maybe your most challenging project, your memoir. How's it going? Well, uh, I've, I've had so many false starts, uh, obviously, that I really don't have much time to, uh, you know, I just celebrated my 90th birthday. Uh, i got to get on with this thing, but giving some advice on focus, I would find that very valuable. Absolutely. I would be honored. I think the best advice I've ever received when I was trying to write a book or a major idea, take a point of view and turn it into something substantial, was to not just write an outline and not just dive into chapters in detail, but go somewhere between. To take the concepts that exist in your mind and in your research and in your personal experience and turn them into an eight-page executive summary. So what you're, you're suggesting, and, and uh, it sure makes sense to me, that if you do an outline of the book and then summarize each chapter, the book will take on a much clearer form than just trying to write isolated you know, chapters here and there. So uh, you're on a new project, are you? Yes, yes. This podcast is really exciting to me. It is bold breakthroughs and exploration of individuals getting stuck or challenged at work or in life and doing certain things that are proven to create breakthroughs and just telling their individual stories whenever possible. But I still do my old work. I go into businesses. Even during pandemic, we've had to do some via Zoom. But a lot of times I meet with teams for an hour weekly and we kick it off with a concerted effort to jumpstart rapid innovation. And I guarantee results. I, I take a fee, obviously. But within a few weeks, if we haven't found 10x that amount, I, I don't want to take my fee. So I, I do create some rapid results. And yet, I, I would like to engage more of the people. You know, I'll typically get half of the people really going and doing the things that I prescribe. And I'd like to just get more. 
your only problem you got, uh, Mark, is you're uh, very impatient. <laughs> you want to get some. You're looking for uh, immediate results. Wait a minute. I know. I know. But I do raise results rapidly with these teams. It's just that I do get a little greedy in that about half of the people that I engage with in an employer engage in really going the places I ask them to go and doing the things I ask them to do over those several weeks or beyond. And uh, I just want more of them to engage. And it's a mindset thing. Before the how-to, they don't even do the first how-to. So it's, it's, there's a couple of different profiles I'd love to get your advice on if I could. Uh, first one, I think, is the premature convergence, I call it. Very technical phrase, kind of a fun play on words. But what it, what it is, is, is someone who says, I, I already know everything. I, I can think of one really clear example. We're having a kickoff. There's a gentleman up front, right up front, right in my face. And he says, off the bat, right as I'm starting, hey, I already know what I need to improve in my work. I already have a plan to improve it. So I think I'm okay. And he's still planning to sit there for two thirds of a day with me on the kickoff. So I, I invited him very politely. I said, look, I won't make a big deal out of this. I won't have a big discussion with my contact, your boss. You're fine to just go back to your office and, and execute your plan. If, however, you'd like to try the things and go the places that I prescribe today, I think you'll get a lot out of it. I know you'll get a lot out of it. And he did. But I run into that all the time. I already know this. I've done this for 20 years. I don't need any of your advice. I've already converged on the possibility. I already know the single solution. I'm on it. Thanks, anyway. What are your thoughts on that? You know, you use the term converge, and the big challenge when you've got a collaborative situation where you're trying to come up with uh, new ways of doing things is exactly the opposite. You don't want to converge. You want to expand. You want to create an environment where people are not afraid to say whatever comes into their minds because it's the new ideas and the different ways of thinking that are so hard to extract. I must have told you, the only smart thing I ever said was, the best way to get people to think out of the box is to not create the box in the first place. Brilliant. Selling has a process. Technologists have a process. Ops have a process. And they're all trying to improve and make more efficient the process. But getting efficient and focused and streamlining is wonderful. It creates profit. But sometimes you have, a, in fact, all the time, you always have some forward-thinking client, usually a potentially lucrative client. And there are changes coming in the market, shifts that maybe you don't see yet, but they're coming. And it takes more than streamlining, standardizing, uh, reducing to get profit out of a process to be successful in business. It does take a pivot. It does take shifting to the side and then making a run for the end zone. So what are your thoughts on this? I think what you're touching on is that you can't be creative and efficient at the same time. If you're just checking off the boxes, it's too easy to stop thinking about something 
if you're in a truly innovative process, you really want to go off on tangents. You want to think of new ideas. You want to have a lot of bad ideas. If you start out at the beginning only looking at good ideas, you're going to skip a whole bunch of creative possibilities. Efficiency is not the goal. It's being able to expose and accept new and different ideas. Production streamlining standardization is not always going to be the answer. Okay, once I asked you if we just follow the smartest in the organization when they make improvements and the rest of us just keep pushing and doing as expected alone. And I want to play your previous response because I thought it was brief and right to the point and talk about who should, who should participate in trying to create breakthroughs. Everybody has something to contribute, and everybody has a reason to deserve respect. I love that old clip. I wanted to play that because it's such a short and sweet statement about a couple of things. First of all, if an individual believed that statement, they would bring so much variety and creativity. They would become a differentiator themselves to the organization that they work for. Second of all, the leader, if they believe that statement and used the idea of respect to beg and plead the whole individual, all of their teammates, the whole individual should come to work, not just the 10 bullet points they hired for, but plead for all of it to come, even the mistakes, frankly. I love the word respect. Uh, the thing that caught my attention also was the word contribution. I love the phrase unique contribution because if we expect and invite and perform ourselves a unique contribution in everything we do at work, we again become a differentiator. What, what do you think, Marty, about the word passion in the workplace? Passion. I don't know how anybody accomplishes anything without being passionate about it. And I don't know how you articulate something as emotional as passion. But anybody that I have seen who takes on a really hard problem doesn't solve that problem without being passionate about it. And I don't know how you describe that in the context of somebody like you who's trying to teach people how to be innovative. Oh, I unpack passion. A passion for purpose as a leadership activity, engendering a love or an excitement for the reason we all get together and help those people we call customers in all my work was the number one predictor of financial impact and several different client results and even a little piece of whether I like my, love my work or not uh, as a worker. So it has to be unpacked. It's the ideal mindset of all that we've been discovering and, and discussing. And uh, thank you for helping me pull those that need to be pulled ahead as well. I want to shift a little bit to the tools, the how-tos of how to create a breakthrough. And I want to try to go through your story again and see if we can find places and activities. And what I mean by that is in my work, I've found that people that create breakthroughs literally go to a few places. Places they haven't been before. Maybe generally, but not a specific place. And also, once they find themselves there, literally at a place, they do a certain thing. And I want to see if those things exist in your story of the mobile race to create the first cell phone. So the first one is your specialty, I feel like. At least you're the poster child and you're the example that I use 90% of the time when I talk about this place and this action. 
And the first place we have to go is deeper within the mind of the potential customer. We have to go to a place way below the cortex, into the amygdala, where they're feeling certain things they don't even realize, and those innate drivers and those innate needs are causing buying behavior and opinions about usage and the current situation. And we have to go also into a place that is not present into the future deep in their mind and the recesses of the business and how we can impact that as well with a little data. And you know how to do this, I think, better than anyone I've ever met. So could you just share with me your thoughts about this first place we go and turning into a psychologist and ferreting out some of those things? I sure get the principle. It's very easy to talk to a lot of people and only penetrate the top layers of what the people are picking and what they need or what the objective is. But to really understand something, you've got to burrow in and get down to the essentials, to what's the real driving force. And, and I don't think you do that with uh, with focus groups or asking people. We really have to burrow in on it. So what makes you so good at burrowing deeper in customers' minds? Somehow I had the good fortune in my career to start out in a, a narrow area. I happened to be lucky enough to go to work for Motorola. But it seemed like each project I had uh, built upon what I had done previously. And the big issue is having the self-confidence to know that uh, your uh, judgment of what people are going to want is uh, valid. I don't know if that makes any sense. So that experience working in a similar market with similar customers gave you a base of understanding, gave you a, a beginning of a confidence that you could see what they really needed in the future. Uh, what made you so good at being a bit of psychologist with these prospective buyers? Self-confidence is a crucial part of the uh, innovation process. If you think about that, you put yourself in the mind of, of another person, and you're actually not thinking about what uh, that other person is thinking. It's about what he should be thinking. Ah, so the decision driver is invisible to the current customer. So the self-confidence you talk about is not necessarily the typical self-confidence. It is that you can understand the customer because you've invested the time that you've actually scheduled or spent in the amount of time that's needed to go deeper in their mind. And not only seeing those underlying needs, but see what's coming in the future. What needs are operating beneath consciousness, but also not in their awareness because they're focused on the here and now. Uh, did, didn't your competition kind of miss this point a little bit? You know, the issue of the car telephone and the ability for lots of people to have car telephones started with some guys at the laboratories were working on it just a very specific detail, and that is how you could take a, a relatively small amount, number of radio channels, and have a lot of telephone conversations on those radio channels. And at that time, the state of the art was such that all you could do was car telephone. And so they wrote their idea down, and interestingly enough, they said that they didn't think it was a very creative idea, but they uh, wrote this idea down about how they could reuse the radio spectrum over and over again in a city. And they used the word car telephone. Well, this is, this is Bell Laboratories in the telephone business, and future generations would look at this problem and say, well, I, that, that's something that we ought to do in their cars. Somehow or other, they just never got the message that them to be in their cars. It wasn't an awful lot of freedom because people only spent about 5% of their time or, or less in their cars. So just tether it again one more time, but this time to cars instead of walls and desks. You know, 
even some of your team you mentioned in a previous conversation was investing in that competition to tether the car again uh, to phones. You talk about the fundamental human need. The people are inherently conservative. You can't just come up with a revolutionary idea and expect people to clamor for it. You have to kind of edge in on it, get them to appreciate one aspect of something that they that has to grow on them. So you described to me earlier on how on your team you began to question things and some questions haunted you about calling a place instead of a person. For example, how a child might miss a mother because they're trying to call on a phone that is tethered to a kitchen wall, the kitchen phone. Or maybe uh, one sibling trying to call another and missing them in an office because they're trying to call them on the office phone tethered to a desk and they're not in the office. So these things started bothering you, but it was quite disruptive when you started saying, hey, people, what do telephone users really want? Do they really want us to build a phone where we're calling a place again instead of a person? You know, people didn't know that they needed cell phones, as an example. And that's true with almost every invention, is that people don't really know that they need or are going to want some new thing. So you're not only pretending to be somebody else when you're inventing, you're pretending to know what that person is going to want in the future. And that, uh, to me, is a real challenge. And the biggest challenge there is that, so uh, how do you have the self-confidence to know that uh, you know better than people themselves what they need? To know that, uh, that uh, your judgment about what people are going to need is right. I love that. Uh, the next learning I saw in your work involved the next tool I want to talk about. The place that I need people to go to create breakthroughs are the spaces of the customer. And what do they do? I want them to literally go to the spaces of the customer where they buy, where they use, and get out their phones and become a little bit of a photojournalist and capture everything. There are some specific things I have them capture, three entire categories, in fact. But it's interesting, when we go to those spaces, we can uh, discover great things. In fact, one of the examples that I love using is uh, an interview I did with uh, Diego Rodriguez from IDEO. He's now with Intuit, but back when he was with IDEO, the famous product development firm, he talked to us about many examples of their innovation for clients, and he talked about a stroller company coming into town for a sales meeting, evaluating whether they wanted to work with IDEO. And he talked about how they proposed all these ideas and had brainstormed and suggested them, and at some point he had to say, look, if you want us to upgrade the stroller and turn it from that little basic simple thing into something that it really deserves to be, we're going to have to go to parks and watch mothers and fathers use strollers and dissect what are the problems they're facing, like tripping on the curb of the sidewalk or the baby fumbling drinks off of the side or toys and seeing mothers carrying too much with no place to put them. We're going to have to see what happens and, and, and go take pictures and video and study them. 
What are your thoughts on getting into the spaces and places where customers use a product that's potentially like ours or what the current situation is? More than the example you gave of going out and watching people using strollers, I think that to understand the stroller business, you've got to have a baby and be pushing the baby around and have real-life experiences. Only then do you really know what, what the requirements for a stroller are. How do you know what your, if your customer is a shopper, how do you know what experience they have if you're sitting up at a uh, ivory tower someplace? You've got to go ahead and actually reproduce the customer's experience. Well, that's really hard to do. It is hard to do. You know, in fact, I call these brave moments old encounters with customers because they are scary. It's scary to try to find your way into their space, even if it's their computer screen or at the park or wherever. It is not a normal work activity for most people, but it yields so much for salespeople, for IT people, and operational people that have never been in the space of the customer. So, uh, you know, one of the things to point out also is that some people want to bypass this step and think they can get all the intellectual ideas in other ways. But the thing is, is when you're in the space, you're utilizing all your senses. You're watching the problems that happen, the opportunities that appear. Something more than intellectual happens. It becomes a very emotional experience, almost innate experience, like I want to nurture, I want to help those people, and it becomes very passionate. So I, I know that when you got on the team at first at Motorola, you were encouraged at the beginnings of this type of activity, even if it didn't go all the way. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So what, what I discovered, every engineer, every member of management in the team Every morning and every evening, would get in their car, and they'd have two-way radios. They might be the latest version of something. It might be experimental. They might be the standard product. And on the way to work and on the way home, they'd be talking on their two-way radios. Uh, anytime there was somebody wanted to try a new idea, we wouldn't sit in the laboratory. We'd get out in the car, because that's where our products were, and uh, run field tests. So we lived the business. We didn't wait for our customers to come and tell us what they needed. You know, of course, you'd listen to the customers, but you can anticipate what they needed because you've been out there and lived, actually experienced firsthand what the business is. So I, I, I don't, I don't believe in uh, that. Focus groups are are very valuable because people don't know what they don't know. So you're in a slightly different market, but then you went into started exploring. The, the market that was going to be utilizing a phone, not a radio. What did you learn when you went out into this space of potential customers? It took some observation, at least in my experience. At Motorola, we were dealing with a different marketplace. We were dealing with people that we were using communications to run businesses, and we discovered that there were countless businesses that could not be conducted without using communications to manage resources. Makes sense, but could you give me a couple specific examples of industries or type of potential customers that you gain some takeaways from encountering? You have to live the customer's experience to to understand it. You can't theorize about it. 
So you got a plumber that's got uh, three or four people uh, moving around between uh, different customers, and they could get more efficient if they could manage those resources while they're out on the move. Airline personnel in an airport who were carrying their phones around with them and could no longer conduct operations without having those connections. I see. So it seems like a magical moment when you went to the spaces and places of plumbers when they were outside their vans and airport personnel who had their cars parked a half a mile away or so that insights really solidified. Uh, I want to play an old clip again. It's hard to hear again, but it shows the confidence, the self-confidence you were talking about a while ago and what your insight was at some point around this time. And then I want to get your reaction. They are naturally, inherently mobile. If you think about it, you're always moving around. And anything that inhibits you from moving around, whether you're in your office talking to somebody or uh, you're out on the streets, it, it keeps you from moving around. is unnatural and inhibiting. And yet, if you think about it, for uh, over 100 years, even in 1973, we had been taught that if we were going to talk to somebody, we had to do it wired to the wall, just stuck at our desk. I can hear your self-confidence. You've discovered that mobility and freedom are key in this endeavor. Uh, I want to just point out, because this is a very unusual activity of going to the spaces and places where customers buy and use, and also then turning into a little bit of a, a photojournalist and capturing everything you can for these insights. It's not something that normal employees do, as I've said. And so I want to just emphasize how ridiculous it would seem that you gained this insight about this underlying need and, and the essential nature of it for your project. If you're back at the office in a conference room brainstorming, or if you are sending emails or having a discussion with someone who just has no idea and thinks a car phone seems really cool. If you want to understand the problem, you have to live it. And I just, I think I'm just repeating what you just said about going out into the, uh, into the wilds. The bear's repeating. Now the third place to find breakthroughs is to find yourself connecting with new experts. These are people that you go and you turn into a little bit of a crowdsource, a better crowdsourcer though. You go find these new experts. They're adjacent to your space. They might be serving the same prospective customers, but in a whole different industry or something near what you're doing. And did you have any experience reaching out to new experts? If you recall, it turns out that we were dealing with the FCC. The FCC was the decision maker. The FCC was trying to decide whether uh, to like, give AT&T a monopoly in this new cellular business and let them take over all mobile communications. And I'm dealing with the FCC and government bureaucracy. And it's pretty hard to figure out who the decision makers are. So as I recall, there were lawyers, there were government officials, there were contacts within the companies, and you had to meet a lot of people. And so what did you learn? The Federal Communication Commissioners are not really decision makers, and they've got uh, staff who are really the experts. And I discovered that the, the guy with the most influence in the FCC was the uh, chief engineer. And I built a relationship with him, 
he explained to me what the uh, basic problem was. The way we at Motorola were doing business is we were selling to individuals, uh, plumbers, police chiefs, and of course that was our strength directly with our customers. But meanwhile, every time somebody needs a license, the FTC has to uh, take some action. Here AT&T comes along and says, uh, we'll, we'll take that burden off you. We'll manage all the customers. All you have to do is give us a license for the whole business and, and we'll take this off your hand. Now I realize what our challenge was. And as a result of that conversation, I went back and we invented a way of running the mobile radio business, the police, uh, taxi, plumbers, and so forth, doing that business in a similar way where we could take the burden of assigning individual radio channels from the FCC, and we would take that part on. It, we're, you know, we're back to this issue of how do you really understand a problem unless you go and, and find what the underlying elements are. Oh, this is interesting. So targeted crowdsourcing didn't just help you discover new things. It helped you catch the needs of business contacts that were hidden while you were digging for those end users opportunities. Uh, that's interesting. So that so it brought you back to the earlier stage in, in a different way, and you found those hidden needs. Interesting. Um, so you know, connecting to the new contacts, asking smart questions, builds support, but it also builds a sort of board of advisors for the priority that you're trying to create a breakthrough for. And it sounds like this might have done something like that for you, right? Yeah. Okay, now at this point, we're talking about reaching out to new experts, new contacts that we've never even met before. We better talk about the tools. So in order to reach and gain access to new experts, social media and other technology tools are extremely helpful for obvious reasons. We're already using those in, in ways that we use today. But I want to talk a little higher level and in futuristic, if we could. Uh, it's become clear at this point that social media executives have made decisions that have enabled revolutions and created new meta realities for better or worse. And they have proven that they can accelerate divisive, harmful engagement and they can help us escape the different meta universes, metaverses. And the motivation has been questioned, and, and we're not here to discuss that, but clearly there's always a, a threat of personal gain motivation in doing harmful things in, in powerful business people and leaders. But let's suppose that we could imagine one day these executives are really trained and focused on just good things for their market and for society to accelerate mostly constructive collaboration. What do you think that that looks like? I look at the, as an example, the process of collaboration. Right now, we've got Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, social media. These are all forms of collaboration. And to me, they are all, they're still in early stages. They're, they are tools. People have not yet realized how important these tools are to be in the future when they are refined enough so that people can not only collaborate, but that they can go through the process of expanding and airing all the ideas. And then after that, you get through that process, uh, you can go through the convergence and actually zero in on a specific problem. 
we haven't figured out how to do that with these collaborative tools, although there are a lot of people working on it now. Don't you think collaboration and problem solving are the real powers of these tools, much more so than just the fun and, and some of the problem and arguments that are happening? Yeah, but uh, I think that's one of the most powerful influences in the technology today is the ability to get people to, to work together to collaborate on specific problems in much more efficient ways than we've ever done before. So what do you think connecting constructively with strangers may look like in the future in, in some of these realities? Because, uh, you know, an example that, uh, that we talked about in, in our conversation hour of having people collaborate. And with all of the collaborative work we've got now, it's possible to get any combination of different kinds of people at different times and different locations. So all those things, no longer limitations. If you could figure out how to, how to manage that process, eliminating time and space, I think we are going to have a revolution in, in uh, innovation. I know that social media has, has probably done some very harmful things uh, as well as good things, and yet they still are kind of in the game stage too. So once you used an example that I thought was really helpful in describing what has to happen in the future of technology by looking back at a technology game, could you share that with us for a minute? My way of describing that had to do with how we got into this business of being able to use technology the way we do today. My example of that is that it all started with Pong. Do you know what Pong? Do you remember? Of course. I wish I were too young to remember, but I played and loved Pong when I was a little, uh, at least for a minute in time. If you recall, Pong was a mindless game. I mean, you, you sat there with a device in your hand watching the television set, moving these bars up and down while the ball bounced between them. But people at the beginning were kind of hypnotized by Pong, but they got over that pretty quickly. And the next thing you know, uh, we've got uh, Pac-Man. And it wasn't much of a leap before people were using a mouse to control a computer. The basic idea was nobody had ever thought about you're doing something in your hands that could change something on a screen. And the next thing you know, you're when I say the next thing, we're talking about years, uh, people are uh, controlling more complicated things. And the uh, lead to a mouse uh, moving a cursor on a screen and doing actually useful things is not as difficult as we would have been otherwise. I think you have to go through that process, and that process took uh, years. So I don't think there is. There are shortcuts. Groups of people coalesce uh, in a very natural way to solve a specific problem, yeah, but they are certainly not in the mainstream yet. So how do we get the good version of this collaboration, these tools, into the mainstream? People are very conservative. Somehow you have to creep up on the problem and do it step by step. I think what we're going through with Facebook and Twitter and these other things are essential parts of, of the uh, process. But we're going to get pretty tired. Uh, we're already getting tired. But people are not tired of putting out pieces of information and getting reactions quickly. So I think that there are going to be tools that will evolve out of social media that are going to coalesce and be much more useful than any one of those things by itself. But the least people will have to take to go from a game to something useful will not be as great as it would be if you just start off from scratch. That is a healthy dose of hope and perspective, and we need that to play out. Thank you. Okay, so it's time to return to your story. 
after mining deeper in customers' minds, going to their places and capturing everything possible, and finding new experts to connect with and get ideas from or a breakthrough. A person can end up or should end up if they do all these things with a huge pile of a hundred not good satisfactory ideas but great ideas. But it's important in order to create a, a rapid innovation to only select two, maybe three, sometimes one, but two is really the ideal number. And experiment with these two. What role did going into the lab and experimenting play for you and your team on the mobile competition, the mobile race? What we discover is, number one, now possible to do this thing with car telephones, devices in a vehicle, but in the devices that are part of the person. And so we do some experiments, and what do you know, we find out that when people have that freedom, you know, once they get it, they don't want to give it up. And so it was not a very big leap to go to why not everybody? Why wouldn't everybody have the feeling of control, of freedom, if the devices that are part of the person? They could be in communication all the time. Uh, just sitting there brainstorming doesn't cause things like that. And also, if you do that, you kind of end up in a situation where you're really just guessing from all the ideas what seems right. But you lived what's right and, and, and saw it, and it appeared and became obvious. Uh, it's the smarter work, though, that happens earlier. It's clear that that's the case. I think that's what we're discovering here in this moment. Um, so you have a big pile of ideas, and that's what builds the big pile of ideas. But it's also what helps you sort through them and converge on the opportunities that are real that might be right. Is that correct? I can't get away from the uh, concept that, that the ideas themselves are kind of superficial. When you come up with a solution to something, it's always, almost always becomes kind of obvious what the right answer is compared to what the uh, less right answers are. So you, almost always the idea or the solution that is the right one just becomes obvious. I don't know if that is your experience addressing this problem in a much more organized way. But you need the organization to actually give a structure, a framework set for others to do these things uh, so that they can sell more, that they can build better, that they can deliver for clients in, in more beneficial ways. So doing the right thing makes opportunities obvious that are worth experimentation. I want to play a recording from one of our earlier conversations that we've had about your final experiment, your public demonstration that involved Joel your competition's leader, and they're still working on the car phone that has the phone tethered to the, the front console of the car and big batteries in the back. We built a, a phone so that we could do a demonstration and prove to the world that a little company like Motorola could do what AT&T said that only they could do. And we had to prove that somebody else could do it, and not only that, that the biggest company in the world was wrong and that car telephones were not the right way to go, that portables were the right way to go. Being a fundamentally a ham, I just assume that the only way we're really going to do this is by doing what I call a dazzling demonstration. We had heard that uh, the FCC was about to make a decision. If the FCC decided to give AT&T an exclusive a monopoly, business-wise we would have been in trouble, but more importantly, society would have been in trouble because it would have taken that much longer for us to have handheld portable cell phones. So it sounded very natural to me to do a dazzling.
to Joel and I, after we had the initial thing of who I am, I just told him, Joel, I'm calling you from a cellular phone, a real cellular phone, a portable handheld cellular phone. I love that part of your story, how you took a member of the press with a camera and you told me you heard silence on the other end of the phone for seconds. I, I, I do suppose that Joel was nice about you, including him in your demo, right? My recollection is that he was very polite, but it was not a lengthy phone call. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it wasn't. Okay, the final place I want to take us is to the proper finish line for a breakthrough. You know, the usual finish line for people doing work is when our work is done, we move on to the next project. But the only appropriate finish line for a breakthrough is when the customers experience delight in reality. Only they can define that. So that's when the real, where the real finish line lies. And we have to find ourselves there to create a breakthrough. So I once asked you about that original brick and I said, Marty, did people really use that? You, you demonstrated it worked, but it looked so dang heavy. You said, Mark, it doesn't matter. The battery barely lasted at all, so they didn't have to hold it up very long. Oh, that's great. But you had delivered. And so as soon as you delivered, people started buying those bricks in masses, right? Wildfire. The spreading of wildfire is something that happens only in retrospect. You know, the story that we demonstrated the first uh, handheld cell phone, it took quite a while for people to realize the advantage of freedom of, uh, of personal phones. Uh, they could make themselves more productive by being by having the ability to continue to communicate while they were out. So they could be out and about, but you guys continued to work and your team honed the features, honed the benefits, focused on some advantages, and as some of those secondary essential needs started to be fulfilled, then this thing really got going. The market took off. So it didn't happen immediately. <laughs> that makes sense. This was a big breakthrough. Uh, tell me your thoughts on delivering all the way to customer delight, that, that second real finish line. Oh boy, well, I have strong feelings about that. You know, you know, you there are so many cases that I've run into in the real world where I don't believe that the executives running businesses have any idea what's going on with their customers. The really effective executives that I've known, including me, have to get really get down into the basics. You have to know what a customer is actually experiencing in order to know, first of all, whether you're serving them well and how you can serve the customer better. I think that the most executives that I've experienced, including marketing people, have lost the ability to do that, lost the ability to actually get down and reproduce the customer's experience. <laughs> I have to say, this sounds a little personal. Are we talking about a personal example here? I'm just about to change my... Uh, cable provider. My service is so bad that it's inconceivable to me that anybody could be running a business like that without figuring out how they're not serving their customers properly and trying to fix it. You want to know something, Mark? I have nobody to talk to. There's nobody that I can call and say, hey, you guys, I'm, I am not getting what I paid you for, and uh, somebody's going to do something. But what I get is, well, would you unplug this and plug it back again? I try to fix their problem. I, I don't think that's a general comment. I think it's very specific for lots of businesses. 
when we were running the uh, jitterbug business, the way our, Arlene and I approached it is uh, we would have some new feature. We would put that feature out to some people that we knew that were typical candidates and then let them use it for a while and then sit down with them and bar in and try to understand how they are using it, ask questions, because if you wait for them to come and tell you about it, uh, they're going to give up before they, you get anything useful. How personal. Okay, I want to play one more quick clip from a previous conversation that we had that really describes how personal this breakthrough that you created is to each of us listening. There have been actual surveys on where people concluded they'd rather give up a meal or give up something, anything else, but they wouldn't give up their cell phone. I love that. Marty, I want to thank you. I want to represent all of those who hear this and thank you for giving us the freedom to stay close to our children, to stay close to our loved ones, to stay close with those people that we work with. You really changed the world and uh, I think each of us can model this in our own little corner of the world. You changed human communications, especially out in those rural, impoverished areas where there was no telephone infrastructures and people just couldn't connect. You've literally connected the world. That's nice of you to say that. I also want to thank you personally. You've always been so generous with me and shown such surprising friendship. But I'm glad you have those uh, good feelings. And I'm sure it's time that you need to get going and move on to your next thing. Yep. Yep, I do. Thank you. See you later. Thank you for joining me today to learn from Dr. Martin Cooper, the leader of the team that developed the very first cell phone. Edward Bulwer-Lytton said, The true spirit of conversation consists of building on one another's observation, not overturning it. Marty Cooper redirected his team to build connections that were healthy through the principle of freedom. But let us all follow Peter Marshall's lead when he said, think of freedom not as the right to do as we please, but as an opportunity to do what is right. Thank you, Marty, for sharing with us your advice on how to do work that can change the world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend that needs a breakthrough. Post this on social media and add my website, or tag my YouTube page, or just text markspencercook.com to a friend, or message that link on Instagram right now. Also, make sure to subscribe on my site at markspencercook.com to stay up to date on all the latest advice on how to unstick priorities to create breakthroughs. I'm so grateful that you listened today. And remember, you have people rooting for you. They love you and want you to make your breakthrough. That includes us too. Take the first step. Now, you know what time it is. It's time to go create a breakthrough for your work in life. And we'll see you there.